newspapermen meet such interesting people. They know the lowdown, now it can be told. I'll tell you quite reliably off the record about some charming people I have known. For I meet politicians and grafters by the score. Killers plain and fancy, it's really quite a bore. Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. They wallow in corruption, crime and gore. Ting-a-ling-ling, city desk, pull the press, pull the press. Extra, extra, read all about it, it's a mess meets the test. Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. It's wonderful to represent the press. Media Project gives you a half hour of commentary and analysis, sometimes some insight into what's going on in the news media these days, and we hope that you will enjoy listening and even participate by sending us your thoughts. I'm Rex Smith here from the Upstate American, formerly editor of the Times Union, here with a bunch of other folks. I've got Barbara Lombardo here next to me, formerly executive editor of the Saratogian and the Troy Record. I've got Rosemary Armeo, investigative journalist and professor, and of course, Dr. Alan Shartok, the CEO of Northeast Public Radio, professor, etc. And once publisher of the Fire Island Sun many years ago. Oh, who knew? I had no idea. You want to talk about that, Alan? (laughs) As a matter of fact, quite an experience. (laughs) Okay. Uh, We're just sorry. We're going to talk about the uh, power of community engagement in journalism. We're going to talk about artificial intelligence coming for the jobs of journalists. We'll probably talk about the Speaker of the House giving Tucker Carlson access to those January 6th tapes. But first, ladies and gentlemen, we have Rupert Murdoch here. We have the peril confronting Rupert Murdoch because of the revelations about Fox News that are coming out of this Dominion lawsuit. And the question that I have, and Dr. Shartok, you're a keen observer of American affairs. True. Keen, keen, I say. And so the question that I want to ask you is, do you think this will have any impact on the popularity of Fox News with its audience? Do you think that what we now know, the bottom line being that Fox personalities have been lying to their viewers, notwithstanding what they're saying off camera, do you think it's going to matter? I want to defer to my colleagues on the panel. However, I am going to say everything counts. You know, if a pebble drops in the stream and it has concentric circles, obviously, you know, it's going to account for something. But Rex, in answer directly to your question, not much. Rosemary? Yeah, I, I agree. It should, and I would love for it to have an impact to hear Rupert Murdoch say that he didn't really care about the truth. It didn't have anything to do with red or blue. He didn't care about politics. It had to do with money, something liberals have long suspected. And now he said it. He said the quiet part out loud. And not only do I think it won't make a difference, I think his constituents don't even know about it. He has forbidden his media program to bring up the topic of the Dominion lawsuit. It's not covered in the news show. They certainly are not tweeting about it. Hannity does not talk about it. So how would they know? They know it's not like they're looking at, at anything else. So, no, I think it's horrible. I hope they lose that lawsuit and have to pay billions of dollars. That would be lovely. But even that, I think he would take in stride and nothing will change. So, Rosemary, what exactly, just for the people who are listening, is the issue here that has to be sorted out? Well, Dominion Voting Systems has sued a number of entities, including Fox News, for libel, for defamation. And that is because Fox and the aftermath of the 2020 election repeatedly went on air across a number of programs and claimed that Dominion Voting Systems, which supplies machines in like 28 states, that they had rigged their machines Mm. and that they 
had set it up so that Trump would lose. It played into Trump's big lie. And in furtherance of this suit, Dominion has publicized a bunch of private emails and messages among and between hosts and officials of Fox News. And they show that all of these people did not believe any of the stuff they were putting on. They did not believe Dominion voting systems had cheated. They did not believe the election had been stolen. They thought Trump had a bunch of crazy people, Rudy Giuliani and Powell, his attorney Powell, both of whom appeared multiple times on Fox News, pushing a theory that wasn't true. And so the way that you win a libel case against a journalistic enterprise, and I use that term loosely in connection with Fox, is you have to prove that they either printed something with malice towards the target or they printed something with reckless disregard for the truth. And those memos, those notes between and among the hosts seem to indicate that that's what they did. They recklessly disregarded whether something was true or not. And Rupert Murdoch, by saying, yeah, looking back on it, I wish we had done it differently. Yeah, my people endorse the idea of the big lie. I guess they shouldn't have. That's reckless disregard. Yeah, but that standard, Barbara, right. you've as an editor, you have confronted this, I'm sure, a number of times. That standard is pretty high because when I think of places where I wish we had done things differently in the news, room, which seemed to me, well, we were careless, but reckless disregard is generally protection because that standard is held high by the courts usually. It is held to high, and I'm not clear, maybe Rosemary, your recs are up on this better, when you said actual malice or reckless disregard Correct. for the truth. Mm-hmm. So either or is helpful to I, have that Yes, in I went back and read the wording the in, or the, in the Supreme and, Court. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, Times v. Sullivan. Times Sullivan mm-hmm. in 1964, and it does say or. However, uh, this goes to a judge and a jury if it makes the next step. If it gets there. If and if you're in a newsroom, if you're a media lawyer, you just say, we never want to get in front of a jury. Yeah, uh, because that's, you never know what's going And you almost happen. never do. I've never had a libel case. I mean, we've, no. I've had libel cases that have them. gotten into motions, and they're always dismissed by the judge. On the other hand, I have never seen a smoking gun like the evidence that Dominion has put out where there's actual written proof that they did not think it was true and they went with it anyway and went so far as to punish one of their colleagues who was talking about the truth. That's extremely damning evidence. So it would be interesting if it does. Let's say that it does go to a judge and jury and it goes against Fox. Then it goes to the Supreme Court and then we got a whole other game. And we have a different Supreme Court. We have a Fox Supreme Court as a matter of fact. We totally we have a rigged Supreme Court. Other people in the roundtable call it illegitimate. I think that's fair, too. And it is itching to change the libel laws. Now, I've changed my mind about that, too, because I was thinking how horrible that would be that if newspapers lost the right to make a mistake, which you're human, you're going to do it. How can you pursue hard news stories if you're under fear that you'll be fined or jailed for making a mistake? But now, let him change it, because if Fox can't even measure up as it's looking under the tough standard that I approve of, then let it loosen. They're going to be paying a lot of money. They do this all the time. (laughs) Fox, Breitbart, none of them are careful. This will not hurt the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal. If it's loosened, there's legislation pending in a number of state legislatures, which is where the right is now going to be making significant headway if it can't hold on to Congress. The legislation is blatantly unconstitutional under the standard of New York Times v. Sullivan, the current libel law, that would loosen libel restrictions under state law. And what is happening, I think, is these state legislatures are trying to get a case before the Supreme Court. They're trying to get someone to challenge a state law so that they can get it before the court. They're betting that these justices will give them a 
But I think you're exactly right. Be careful what you wish for, right-wing wackos, because this is going to hurt the sloppiness of the right-wing media. It is not going to hurt the legitimate media, including, you know, with people, frankly, sitting around this table. I was going to say that, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. So even if it is, I do think that the threat to Fox News is significant, but it's interesting that Rupert Murdoch has said in his deposition testimony, which is what we're reading about now, two things. First, as Rosemary points out, he said, well, yes, our personalities were saying things that I wish they hadn't. And second, he said, well, I delegated everything to me. Suzanne, me. the president. The fall guy. Yeah. yeah. Fall yeah. gal, I guess. is what. <laughs> so, so they've got their fall gal all set up. Yeah. And no matter what the monetary penalty might be against them, they can absorb that. Yeah. And then they can go on their merry way. I totally agree with what Rosemary said at the beginning of our discussion. And yet nobody likes to lose. Well, well yes. But it, how but much that, of a loser is You're he? weighing, like, what, it, what are you losing? Lose. That's what kind of loses. Here's what is interesting to see. Fox News these days is the anti-Trump network. They are coming out very strongly. They're, everything they're doing is in support of Ron DeSantis. And Donald Trump is attacking Fox News all the time on his social media platform, Truth Social. He's just constantly talking about Fox News, those rhinos, because they're not standing with him. But the viewers of Fox News are. The Republican Party is still Donald Trump's party. It's not Ron DeSantis's party. And I think that's where there is some peril for Fox News, because the party, it's gotten away from him. The audience has really gotten even further radicalized beyond Fox News. So what's that saying? You lie down with pigs, you... Do you lie down with pigs? You oink, I believe. <laughs> I don't think that's it, Alan. <laughs> I guess if we're going to start a trite phrase, we ought to know how to finish it. But anyway, you know, we are no fans here, as anybody knows who's listened to this program of Fox News. It shouldn't be called news after all. And it has always been a propaganda organ. It has always been a pox in the American society. The difficulty is that it has damaged the credibility of all media, and now we are trying to regain the trust of the American populace. Barbara, I want to ask you about this because this is actually where a community journalist comes in handy. I was interested in an article from Pointer, which is the journalism think tank down in Florida, that says journalists must understand the power of community engagement to earn trust. What does community engagement mean for a local journalism organization, and how does that build trust? Well, when you're writing stories that show that you understand your community, you know the people in your community, that you are not cherry-picking the people in your community, I think that's part of the trust. An example would be years ago when the Saratogian was owned by Gannett, and they made a concerted effort to demand that their editors were having representation in their newspapers from people of color. Even in a town like Saratoga, where there was maybe 3%, 4% people who were black. And so they didn't want you to just go out and get a picture of a black person to put in the paper. Right. But they wanted you to say you're doing a story about the local businesses or the Apple Fair or you know, it could be a feature or a news story to actually find people who don't look like you, because everybody was white working at the paper and in the community, find people who don't look like you and include them in stories that are not about race, that are not about poverty, that are not about crime, things that are just part of the normal routine of living in the community. 
yeah. so that people of diverse backgrounds who lived in the community would see themselves in the newspaper. Did so that, that work for Gannett? Did yeah. you find that useful as an editor, that guidance? I found it useful. It was almost a good idea that maybe was a little too far. We actually had to document to our corporate bosses, like, who was a person of color that we talked to? Nobody, nobody was really checking those things, but you really had to do it. And I thought it was a good exercise because it forced reporters to get out of their comfort zone and to seek people out you know maybe there was two downtown businesses that were owned by people of color uh-huh. and you wanted to make sure that you know, not every single time or it gets kind of silly well, I was but that say, occasionally you you're get getting <laughs> over and over again you keep quoting the same person sometimes that was a problem mm-hmm. yeah but the general idea of having to talk to people that you normally wouldn't talk to get them into the stories that are not pigeonholing topics so if you're trying to reach beyond the usual audience, the people you always talk to, to diversify, but you're in a community where the power structure is overwhelmingly of one race or nationality, and this has always been the problem for women as well, when the power structure in a community was all male, and you try to move the journalism conversation forward by representing more broadly, aren't you then skewing the coverage away from precision and you're actually then overbalancing it otherwise. There were times when you would feel you were mm-hmm. maybe overbalancing to make it unbalanced. Yeah, right. But if you don't make the effort, right. then people in your community are never or rarely represented. Right. Pointer points to a 2020 University of Texas study of black Americans' distrust of the news, and they found that journalist coverage of black issues is incomplete and skewed negatively in the opinion of black Americans. Of course, conservative Americans feel that as well. You know, we all like to target the news media, but there is no doubt that coverage has been skewed to favor those in power, and that has overwhelmingly, of course, been white and male for generations. Anyway, it's an effort on the part of journalists to reach out, to engage the community more with the hope that that might, from the ground floor up, build more trust in journalism. But if you are losing local news organizations, as we've talked about in this program, we're losing an average of two newspapers a month in this country, or is it two newspapers a week go out of business now? A lot of the smaller weeklies are going out of business. So if you're losing local community organizations, you don't have the opportunity to build back that trust. You don't build the sort of engagement that might then translate to journalism more generally. You know, Rex, back in the day, we used to have these tremendous fights as to what the word community meant. You know, who was the community? Sometimes it was regarded as a word which represented those people who were diverse. Sometimes it meant in the overall concept of what people were thinking. So community has always been bedeviled, a lot of us, in terms of its actual meaning. Hmm. And so we need to talk about communities, plural, I guess, right? A good journalism organization reflects the many communities that it serves. And it used to confuse us at the Times Union. We would look at our obit pages and see that even the obituaries were predominantly white, that we just weren't even getting that. And, of course, when there used to be wedding announcements, I don't even know if the newspapers have wedding announcements anymore, but there used to be that stuff. And they talk were, about not serving your communities. Yeah, right. No kidding. Isn't yeah, that Yeah, well, that was, that was a very telling issue for us yeah. way back when 
and they were free for a long time, and then people had to pay to put them in, and then they really realized they didn't need us at all for those kinds of things. But for the <laughs> weddings and engagements, mm-hmm. we would be so happy when there was a black family that submitted something, a birth announcement with a picture or an engagement announcement with a picture, because it meant that they cared enough to have their news shared in what we want to think of as their local newspaper. Mm-hmm. By the way, folks, if you want to comment on any of this, media at WAMC.org is our email, and we're happy to hear from you, and we would be happy to use your thoughts in next week's program because we are here every week on WAMC and other stations across the country. That's a good thing. We're going to talk here about the little fact that folks have been losing their jobs in journalism as a result of the economic changes wrought by the digital revolution. But now the new peril is artificial intelligence. AI is coming, and it's coming after journalist jobs. So should we be worried about that? Can you give us an example of what AI looks like? if you enter data about a sports contest, Mm. it can write a pretty good sports story about a game. You know, they even know what verbs to use, and they can look at the record and you can be pretty well persuaded that that story is just as good. Actually, it's probably better than a beginning sports reporter because it's going to be punctuated and spelled correctly. I can see AI replacing the copy desk, the first read, maybe the second read. You might have to have an editor to work on the nuance of a story. You want somebody to talk about the judgment in a story. That would become an editor's role. But copy editing, making sure spelling, punctuation, word choice even, that could be done by AI. Why would that be problematic? Isn't that good? I work at a university, Barbara, you do too, where they're very worried that AI will take over student work, that they'll use it to cheat. And I think it's worthless worry. AI is coming. And the better attitude is to say, okay, how can we use this as a tool? I remember when mathematicians were horrified that the slide rule was going to be put out of business, that calculators would keep anyone from learning math. And in truth, what we've seen finally is that because it's taken out all the drone work, mathematicians go on to higher level of work. And the same thing will happen with writing. And the kinds of stories you're talking about, did you spend years as I did with UPI, writing horrible Friday night stories where it's this team beat this team by a certain number of points. It's totally formulaic. Why should it not be done by AI? And copy desks, we don't have them now anyway, Rex. Those were the first to go with cuts. So yes, let them correct spelling and grammar. And I'm all for using AI. I embrace it. Bring it on. There'll be a lot of people listening to this who won't exactly understand what AI is and how it's used. That's a good point. Artificial intelligence, basically robots. If you want to know what it is, go see Space Odyssey 2001. How (laughs) is AI? And the fear and the power of AI are in that movie, that prophetic movie, where it's almost human-like in intelligence. And if you were to believe the New York Times, their tech reporter did a really kind of scary interview with a chat bot that works for Bing now, introduced into Bing search engines. And it expressed a desire to go beyond the questions of humans to, I love you too. It was very Hal-like. Yeah. So it could do that. On the other hand, it can see patterns in information and in data that humans can't do. It's a hugely powerful instrument, but it's new technology, so it's got pluses and minus. It's scary and promising at the same time. I feel like I'm Rosemary's yes man on today's show (laughs) Uh, because I do totally agree on all of those points. I talked about it with my students earlier in the semester. I said it was laughable that the university's big worry is that you're going to cheat on stuff. What we really need to be able to do is to know the basics. That does worry me that students don't know how to punctuate a sentence. Hmm. Uh, Oh, the apostrophe is a lost art. 
So <laughs> some of my students are good at it. Huh. Some are not. But also to think critically. That's what we really want our students to do, to know how to find news, think critically, to be real reporters. And that's something that AI cannot yet do. So using AI to do the grunt work of stuff is good. But in the realm of photos, I have a huge problem well, about. Let's talk about that, because that's a great problem. That is, that is we are being believe. deceived right and left by artificial photography. For example, making the rounds on social media is this video that shows Elizabeth Warren saying allowing Republicans to vote could threaten the integrity of an election and the safety of the electorate. It's not true. She didn't say it. Although it's, the statement is true. <laughs> <laughs> she did appear on MSNBC. It looks like Elizabeth Warren being interviewed on MSNBC, but it's not authentic. And this is one of the real difficulties that is emerging because technology can make it look like people are saying things. You know, we're generating bots mm. that look very much uh, like things are really happening. Actually, there's research at the University of Albany and many other places looking at how to detect this kind of fraud. But you're going to have to have a fraud detector installed on your implements, on, on your laptop. Oh, the material's uh, coming too fast and furious for that to be yeah, workable. Right it's, now. But it, it will come, won't it? You think? Before I think, we, before I think that AI extinct. is likely to be the mechanism by which yes. we find detection devices that work and that are that are usable. And students all over, computer tech students, well, RPI, is working yeah. on that right now. Right. So what we're missing and run the risk of missing completely is if you're covering something as a real live reporter or photographer, you have to be there to witness the event. You're the photographer who goes to the scene of the train crash yeah. or the fire or whatever it might be, the school program. AI can't be there to actually do a story in real time of a real event. And so we need people to do that. Likewise, we need a reporter to go to the event to talk to people. To but isn't people. that, by the way, also imperiled an awful lot of reporting these days, especially as a result of the end pandemic, has well, led to journalists not actually going out and doing the reporting. We're, we're creating a lot of young journalists who have gotten accustomed to doing interviews <laughs> by email. We're laughing, Barbara and I, because before the program, we had a discussion about our students who were teaching how to cover a meeting. Uh -huh. And many professors, because of COVID and because of concerns you send, a student out in a car in bad weather what if they have an accident so they're using like YouTube meetings the Niskuna board meets and you can just watch it and I'm saying no I don't want to do that you go to a meeting because you're developing critical skills who's the person to talk to what questions do you ask is what's happening is this important or not those are not decisions that you get by watching Zoom oh, absolutely or, YouTube right. or any of our other devices there's nothing more annoying to me than hearing a reporter on the radio or anywhere else just voicing a press release or giving you a clip from a meeting and stenography stenography because the value of covering a meeting is to be there afterwards and to get to know the people so that you can call them up and talk to them later so that you can figure out what else people are talking about what's not really the so you can say meeting. if you had more than three minutes for a public yeah. comment what would you have said that's not something that you're going to get by watching YouTube and you're never going to overcome the thing that all journalists have to which is to ignore your mother who said don't talk to strangers don't ask embarrassing questions it's very hard to do that when you're a beginning reporter but if you're a journalism professor and you're teaching people there's a liability question parents of course would sue the university if the kid gets into a car accident on the way to cover that meeting I mean, but not I guess to it's... go to a bar you know to meet friends for a party so yeah yeah it's a balance but that's interesting I remember an editor I worked with who told the story of a cop 
cops reporter who was hired to cover cops and who refused to go out to the scene of a homicide because it was dangerous. And he fired the reporter the next day and said, no, that is your job. But we just saw this example of a reporter who was murdered while covering a homicide. What was the editor's name? (laughs) (laughs) Harry? No, no, actually, but it is someone who is still living and practices. practices. But that was horrible. A a reporter was killed. Just a victim of a crime. Could have been a related crime in that area where the homicide was. Well, it was the same shooter who came back and Mm -hmm. murdered the, the TV reporter. And there is a danger to reporting. There always is. And we don't want to put journalists in peril. But the same thing happened. I remember being a a reporter when Hurricane, uh, what was the name of that hurricane that struck Long Island? And reporters were very angry that the editor sent them out onto the streets in the face of a hurricane. (laughs) But the notion was, go out and cover what's happening. What are you going to do? And in fact, we see on almost every television channel that they put some poor schmageggy out in the in the middle of the storm with a poncho on. So, <laughs> but that's for theatrics, isn't it? In the TV show. Yeah, well, there's no end to you know stupid assignments from editors, um, <laughs> and that's one of them to go out and show the wind by getting yourself blown yeah. across the street. But yeah. if you're going out to talk to people whose house have blown away and they're coming back and looking for their family dog, you don't get that by saying stay safe in the newsroom. I actually admit that I found it kind of weenie-ish that reporters withdrew during the COVID crisis. Their job is to cover the COVID crisis. To be a reporter, you have to have a certain amount of courage. And we don't talk about this. Um, well, you're talking about it now. So I, I'm trying to, but I get into trouble for this. It's no, like, you, you know, you're egging on I, people I, to, to I, be I, reckless. I, I, I no longer you. agree with everything, Rosemary. Yeah. <laughs> I know, I know. I mean, we always I mean, teach, come on. We always it, teach the thing that, you know, no story is more important than your life. But, you know, I don't agree with that because I've worked in places where the story is more important, where reporters were willing to give their lives for freedom. Or at and, least to take chances. Yeah, to take big chances. And I I think of the reporter in the Virgin Islands who was covering police brutality. His wife and family were threatened. He had to move them into the United States for safety. His house was firebombed or something. It was horrible. He kept writing the story. won a Pulitzer Prize for it. That's the kind of journalism that I like to see, not the, oh, I, I, I might get COVID even wearing a mask and standing 80 feet away, so I'm not going to cover the story. I'll do an interview. I'm, I'm sorry. I, I so know. you could never see yourself telling a loved one not to go out there because it's... My loved one, yes, but I would go cover the story. If you choose to be a journalist, you choose to take some risk. I don't know. I don't think I know, I know. I, I see your point of view, and I want you to push back. Well, what's yeah. going on here? What's yeah. the fight? Well, whether it was right to let reporters not expose themselves to COVID, especially in the early days and when it was very susceptible and there was no inoculation, you know, no no vaccination. Rosemary is saying reporters should have gone out and covered it anyway. Instead, you know, everybody closed down and reporting was all done remote. So and I, I would say and I think most journalists would say that was appropriate. Rosemary is saying they should have gone out anyway. Because that's yeah, the risk I, I of the mean, job. like I said, I'm not rabid about it. I yeah. well, you certainly have to see the weigh, point. Of you view. have to weigh what the story is. How important mm-hmm. is the story, and is it the only way to tell the story? And is there somebody raring to go? But as the editor responsible for my staff, and is the teacher responsible in a way for my students? I don't. Students you, are a different case. Okay, so, okay totally for, different for the case. for the reporters at the newspaper and the photographers, I think you draw a line of. Is it really something that people need to know? Marie Colvin, the war correspondent who died in Syria, stayed in Homs 
because she felt that was a story to be told. Her editor, her companions, everybody around her said, you've already told a story, get out, save yourself, and she stayed. I question she that. Killed. She was killed. She yeah. went too she It went was too targeted. Far. She was targeted. She went too far. So I understand that there's a line, but... <laughs> Okay, and with that line, we are out of time. Sorry. But we'll be back next week. Alan Shartok, Rosemary Armeo, Barbara Lombardo, and I'm Rex Smith. Thanks to our producer, David Gustina, and to you folks for joining us once again this week on The Media Project. Freedom of the 